0: Hey listeners, Brittany here to tell you a bit about today's sponsor of Undistracted, Mailchimp. Every amazing entrepreneur and small business owner I know has a lot on their plate and getting the word out about their products is incredibly important, but it can also be a ton of work. With MailChimp's smart marketing platform, entrepreneurs can lighten their workload while still getting the most out of their marketing efforts. Later in this episode, you'll hear from a small business owner who will give an inside look at how they run their company. In the meantime, you can learn more by visiting MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. That's MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. Hey y'all, it's Brittany. I grew up really loving church. I don't know if that makes me weird, but I really did. To be clear, I did not go to one of those stoic churches where you got to fight, that and off to sleep. I went to a historic, organ-playing, choir in Holy Ghost-filled Black Baptist church. It was founded in St. Louis in 1846 as the second African church by 23 enslaved and free black folks. Its second pastor was a spiritual advisor to Dred and Harriet Scott. By the time my dad was pastor and my mother was first lady, yes, that's what you call a pastor's wife, it was called Central Baptist Church and it had a rich history of social justice, community impact, and spiritual leadership. Worship was vibrant, liberatory, soul-filled, and very, very, very black. This was the place that raised me, that gave me my first choir solos and public speaking opportunities. This was where I built community and I learned how to lead. It was my home. And home is always a place of deep, deep affection. But for many, it can also be a place of pain. And for folks from all walks of life, church has been a place of hurt, judgment, and shame. Much of the dogma Christian folks, including the ones that black liberation theologians use, can give black women discomfort with our bodies, shame about our sexuality, or harmful perceptions about the roles that we are supposedly meant to play in society. As much as I love the black church as an institution of historical importance and a station of personal impact, I also recognize the many ways I've had to unlearn ideologies that threatened to limit me, things that had little to do with God and much to do with church dogma. Now, mine was not a Christian conservative or evangelical upbringing, but I can absolutely trace how the dogma of religion took over the Jesus of it all, leading to the spiteful, hateful policy we see coming from the right. God is love, and what they're doing, it ain't that. We are undistracted. On the show today, multi-genre theologian, Candice Bimbo.
1: Because I was trying to make this world more just and equitable, I believe my wrong will be counted right. And that's the space that I want the church to be in.
0: That's coming up, but first, it's your
2: untrending news. Hey, folks, this is Cindy Levy. I'm part of the Undistracted team. And since Brittany is out on family leave, I am here with our untrending news. This week, in response to a deadly mass shooting that left dozens of people dead, a government took firm action to save the lives of its citizens by cracking down on guns. I know what you're thinking. How did I miss that one? And no, sorry, Americans, that government was Canada's. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced legislation that would tighten Canada's already pretty strict gun control policies. If they're approved, the measures are going to include a national campaign to buy back military-style assault weapons and a ban on the sale and purchase of handguns. Canadians all agree that we need less gun violence. We cannot let the guns debate become so polarized that nothing gets done. We cannot let that happen in our country. All of this is in response to a 2020 shooting in Nova Scotia that left 22 people dead. And here's a dark fact. The Nova Scotia shooting was the deadliest in Canadian history, but it wouldn't rank in even the top five in the United States, where we've had 231 mass shootings so far this year. And yet, here in the US, on the heels of the murders in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas, federal lawmakers are on recess. That's Congress-speak for vacation, and it means they have yet to take action. Canada is not the only country that has made dramatic moves after seeing its people slaughtered. New Zealand did it, Norway did it, Australia did it. Speed matters here. There have been 18 shootings where multiple people were killed or injured in the one week since Uvalde alone. 18 shootings in one week. If this isn't a work-around-the-clock issue, nothing is. We have so many reasons to do this. We have zero reasons not to. There could be only one message to our lawmakers when they're back from recess on Monday, and that is catch up with the rest of the globe and do it fast. Our next story is related, and it's a tough one. So please take care of yourself while you listen. It's about a woman named Liana Hale. She's 26, she's black, she lives in Kansas City, and last Friday, the police shot her five times, despite the fact that she had her hands in the air and told them she was pregnant. Hale had been in a car at a family dollar store when police ordered her to get out. She did, and she had her hands up, but according to witnesses, told police she couldn't comply with their order to get on the ground because she was pregnant. As one witness told the Kansas City Star, she did not pull a weapon on them. She did not even have a stick in her hand. Nonetheless, they shot her five times. Liana is now in the hospital with serious injuries, and the police have yet to admit any wrongdoing, though as Mother Jones reminds us, that's common in many cases. This case is a brutal reminder that despite the outrage after the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and so many others two years ago, the police are practicing business as usual in too many places. And the police's violence toward Liana Hale stands in stark contrast to the way officers treated the white supremacist responsible for the bloodbath in Buffalo two weeks ago. They arrested him without a single shot, and he was armed. Kimberly Crenshaw, executive director of the African American Policy Forum and a former guest on Undistracted, put it best on Twitter. If mass murderers of black people can be apprehended alive, why must black people in traffic stops constantly fear for their lives? We're gonna end on a happy note because the world needs joy right now. Last weekend, Marianne Okech took home the title of Soul Survivor, meaning she won the reality show Survivor's 42nd season. Wow, 42. Survivor fans got to know Marianne, a Canadian seminary student, for her bubbly personality. And at only 24, Marianne's also making TV history as the second Black woman ever to win Survivor. The first one was 20 years ago.
0: Oh my goodness, it feels amazing to know that I'm going to go and be representation for people who watch these shows. But I hope that not only the Black community is able to be uplifted, but more and more different communities and marginalized communities will be able to be uplifted.
2: Marianne's victory is part of a long overdue sea change in reality television, especially at CBS, which vowed in 2020 that its non-scripted shows would be 50% BIPOC. This season reflected those network changes, and it didn't shy away from public conversations about the way race has played into survivor dynamics and elimination decisions on the show. And yeah, I know what you're thinking. It's only reality TV. But considering that reality television gave us an actual president, representation matters. Congratulations, Marianne. If you run for office, you've got our vote.
0: Coming up, theologian Candice Bimbo on making mental health part of your faith walk right after this short break. And now you'll hear from a featured entrepreneur from the Undistracted Spotlight brought to you by our sponsor, MailChimp.
3: Hi there. My name is Krista Shelton. I'm a NASM certified personal trainer, ACE behavior change coach and founder of coaching with Krista. I specialize in helping women approach life with confidence through movement and mindset work. In late 2015, I was seriously burned out working as a personal trainer in a corporate gym. Until one day, a woman from the gym asked to retain me as her trainer and pay me what I was worth. At that moment, I knew I had something special to offer. I took a leap of faith and began creating the business I envisioned for myself on my own terms. I realized you first have to believe you can become an entrepreneur before you can become one. Now I have the freedom to serve women in a way that aligns with my values, helping them navigate their lives and bodies with curiosity, grace, ease, and excitement. To learn more, visit www.coachingwithkrista.com.
0: Thanks, Krista. Our sponsor, MailChimp, offers an all-in-one marketing platform built with growing businesses in mind. Visit MailChimp.com smartmarketing to learn more about how to fuel your business, even if you're just starting out. And we are back. Now I've been thinking a lot about faith lately. Like I said, it's always been a part of my life. I'll always be part of the pastor's kid club, but lately it's really been a part of my life. Let's just say I've been talking to God about a whole lot. We are not running dry on conversation. And faith continues to be a pretty important part of many Americans' lives. While the number of Americans who say they don't have a religious affiliation has doubled since 2007, according to a study by the Pew Research Center, the majority of people in this country do still identify with the religion. We may not always talk about it, but a lot of people believe. And if you look beyond the borders of organized religion, the numbers get even higher. About a quarter of Americans say they're, quote, spiritual but not religious. And that is a record number. So my point is this. Spirituality, faith, religion, belief, these are important parts of a lot of people's lives, of public life. But in this country, where religion has been hijacked by the right and where God and Jesus and holiness are used to justify cruelty and injustice, faith can get complicated. So let's uncomplicate it. My guest today is a theologian, activist, and intersectional feminist. Candace Bembo says her spiritual practice centers around reimagining how faith can be a tool of liberation and transformation for black women and girls. She is a writer and an essayist whose work appears. Not just in all the usual fancy divinity journals, but in Glamour and Essence, The Root and Shondaland. And if you downloaded the Lemonade syllabus of essential works made by Black women after Beyonce released her incredible album of the same name, well, then you've read Candace's work. And if you haven't done that, then go download the Lemonade syllabus. One of my favorite pieces of Candace's writing is an essay she wrote for the Me Too movement about reclaiming her faith after being sexually assaulted. She wrote about lying in her car, afraid to go home. It would take time, she wrote, to realize that God was crying with me in the car. Whew, child. Candace's new book is called Red Lip Theology for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. She says she wrote it because even though Black women are the most religious demographic in America, we're not often the most prominent religious voices out there. She wrote it because she wanted to claim faith while rejecting misogynoir and cruelty. Needless to say, I've been dying to talk to her. Candace, it is so good to see you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So listen, Candace, for people who are not familiar with your work, I think a perfect way to introduce you is to talk about something you did when you were a graduate student studying theology at Duke Divinity School. Mm-hmm. You produced the now very famous list of more than 200 works that you called the Lemonade Syllabus. Shout out to our good sister, Beyonce. Yeah.
1: Yes, baby.
0: Talk about the creation of that syllabus. Like, what's on it? How did you get the idea for something so brilliant?
1: Yeah, so we all were watching Lemonade. And so many of us were talking about the Black feminist and womanist works that were present and how it resonated and how Lemonade was in this continuum of work. Mm-hmm. And the sister hit me up in my inbox and she said, you guys keep talking about black feminist works and womanist works that you see in Lemonade. What are they? And that was the first time that I realized that we were having a conversation about black women that excluded black women. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's not what this is supposed to be. Like sis created this beautiful literal cultural production that all of us are able to consume, there shouldn't be a Black woman who is excluded from any part of the conversation regarding it. And so I asked one of my homegirls, I said, Do you think it would be corny if I did eliminate Syllabus?
0: <laughs> you always gotta get that check in.
1: <laughs> you know, because y'all wanna be out here looking crazy. Mm. And so she was like, no, like do it. And I reached out really just to my social media community and Boxing Sisters and was like, hey, can you give me like three works that you feel like align with Lemonade? And then from them, other people started sending theirs. And the next thing I know, it was trending. And so I actually had a conversation with Reverend Otis Monster III at Trinity in Chicago. And he was like, you should do something with this. Like, don't let it just be, you know, this this hashtag. And that's how we actually (laughs) produced the syllabus in digital download form. I reached out to my guy brother and was like, hey, can you help me do this? And he was like, yeah. And that is how we got eliminated syllabus.
0: You consider yourself a a multi-genre theologian. What does that look like for you? Like, are you preaching? Are you teaching? Are you like getting mobbed at the grocery store with people's just existential life questions? Like, (laughs) what does that look
1: like? I am someone who, in all of these different spaces, tries to think theologically about how um, we're in these spaces. And what it means for our thriving and our interconnectivity. So whether that's pop culture, whether that's in education itself, like whether it's in influencer culture, uh, social media spaces, like what does it mean to have theological conversations of depth about some of the very things that people may ignore and think aren't as, you know, weighty as they actually are. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah I, but so multi-genre, multi-platform, but not necessarily behind your own pulpit. Because I know you always laugh at the idea of pastoring a church. Oh, no. You're like, that is not for me. It's literally not your ministry.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's not. Like, it's so funny because when people tell me that, I be like, I like saying too much to pastor. Like, I, <laughs> I'm not trying to be nobody's <laughs> so that's not the path. But I think that honestly, the kinds of conversations, the work that I get to do is so much broader Mm -hmm. than the church itself that gives me the opportunity to really think through what does it mean to have conversations about faith that are subversive in ways that pastors can't and in ways that they often don't. And so I'm very clear that like, you know, pastoring. Mm-mm. It is not for you, That's girl. not the move. Well, as a daughter of a pastor and an ordained
0: minister, that is a particular calling. So if that's not the one, then be clear about it.
1: Yeah. Very much so.
0: Okay, so I want to get into red-lit theology. Yes. Obviously, Black women are at the center of your work. They're at the center of this book. The full name is Red Lip Theology for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. Now, obviously, we know that this is a play on Ntozake Shange's famous choreo poem for colored girls who considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. But how did you get from that? to this like how did beauty supply store get all in the mix (laughs) the wild part is that
1: no one has ever asked me that question so i'm super excited i was
0: like i need to know how we got from there to here
1: yeah so part of it you know i talk about sitting in church the sermon was terrible and i said i'm gonna go to sephora (laughs) literally got up
0: (laughs) this is not a good use of my time
1: I'm like, going to sit here and listen to this. And it was so funny because at this particular time, the church that I was attending did offering after the sermon. So I had my money queued up for offering. I was like, well,
0: <laughs> I remember growing up and... You know, like before you had any money, you it would be offering time and you stick your hand out to your mom and she would put a dollar in it yep. and you go up there and put it in the plate. Mm-hmm. And now I'm thinking, well, what if I had collected all those dollars and like bought some lip gloss? Girl. <laughs> so what I love about the book is it really uses this lens of beauty rituals and all that they mean for us as black women to talk about faith. What made you have that spark of imagination to say, I'm going to weave beauty and theology and black womanism together in this way.
1: Well, one, because that, that literally is how they, they came together for me. And then the other part was like, how am I going to have a conversation that's exclusive to sisters like me that they're going to get? And I was like, we know foundation, we know skincare, we know concealer. So let me use this as a means and an entrance into a conversation with each other and with us that works to give us the space to talk about faith and ourselves in a conversation that's really exclusive to us.
0: I mean, you even brought that lens into the way the book is structured, right? So each chapter yeah. is a different step mm-hmm. in the beauty routine, in the regimen. So the first chapter is we are good creation. And that's the skincare part, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. first layer. And it really just had me thinking about the fact that in some ways, our beauty rituals are nearly as sacred as our faith rituals.
1: Yeah, they really are. And I I was doing mine, my, my skincare I like literally when I'm going somewhere and I'm putting on makeup. I'm playing Anti by Rihanna that album, and one of my homegirls just finally told me she was just like, "You do know like this is ritual for you," and I said and I was like, "Yeah, it is." And so she said, "What would it mean for you to be even more intentional about?" how you carve out the sacred space of this. And so that really was when I was like, all right, what, what is my skincare? I was like, that is the bare bones foundation. I can't run from my skin. Like it shows everything, you know, everything about me, like I can't run from my skin. And then I just started building with it. And then, you know, I started, having affirmations of, you know, when I was putting on my eye makeup, like, let everything I see today, you know, remind me of goodness and magic. When I began to really honor the ritual that was this practice, it was at a really difficult time in my life when I needed something that brought hope. And this really brought it in a way that allowed for so, so, so much generativity. That was really the main thing that I thought too was if sisters don't love anything else, we love God and we love looking good. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, I've seen too often it's used in like sermons as this kind of like punchline. But there's nothing wrong with taking a moment for ourselves.
0: Yeah. I don't know if this is the the difficult time you're referring to, but I've been so touched about how transparent and extensively you've written about your relationship with your mother, especially since our passing. And... You talk a lot about how your relationship with with Faith was really informed by her and her theology and her wisdom and the way she lived that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about her. What was she like?
1: What did you learn from her faith walk growing up? Yeah, my mom was God to me. And I say that not deifying her in a way that does not let her allow her to be human. But, to say that my mom showed me unconditional love and care and nurturing and salvation <laughs> and saving my life over and over and over again, and giving me opportunities to thrive and correcting me when when I was wrong. And I think that that's what parents should do. My mom would say, and when she goes to, to heaven, she said, I know God's gonna ask me, What did you do with the gift that I gave you? And she always said that the gift was me. And she said, parent should always see parenthood as a gift. She was like, You have been given this amazing opportunity to shepherd a life and it should humble you, it should motivate you. And I was so grateful to have her because even as I watched her like live into her own faith and feminism even when we were like heated (laughs) in the throes of like theological debate she still gave me room to be me and I did not until she left and until I had other conversations with adult children I did not know how uncommon that is
0: I think your mother and my mother are kindred spirits in that way I'm curious though is there a moment when you said I have some divergent understandings of what this faith thing is when you were in conversation
1: with your mother Yeah, it was really my 20s, Mm. definitely around sex, (laughs) but definitely around, like, the inclusion of, like, my mom had this very interesting thoughts around hell. Like, Mm. she did not believe that everybody that the church damned to hell was going there, but she also still believed that hell existed. And I did not believe that at all. And so I was beginning to like reject hell. And I think really the universalism of my faith really began to make me like, what in what? <laughs> you know, it's like, what in the girl? So Who are you? Who yeah. are you? And what have you done with my daughter, child? <laughs> and so I remember very distinctly, we had a conversation. It started at our house. And then we both went to my grandmother's house in different cars, and it continued there. Mm. And I remember getting in my car, and I just drove home. I remember she came outside to talk to me, to tell me to come back in the house. And I kept driving. I was so mad. Ooh, ooh, Girl. Ooh. you know, And you knew. You knew what choice you were making. Yeah. <laughs> you, I was like, like, I said, I'm going to have to keep driving. Show no fear. <laughs> but I remember driving home and I was like, she just doesn't get me. Like, she just. Mm. And I remember feeling very hopeless. Mm. Because while I was still trying to figure it out, I felt like my theological views would be the thing that pushed us apart. Mm -hmm. And when I had a conversation with her, she was like, girl. (laughs) Pipe down. Yeah. I think that's also (laughs) when I realized I was able to name the ways my anxiety takes me from like zero to 100. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. I remember having a conversation with her and I was just like, I just felt like, you know, we were never going to be. Close, And that like the way I think about God and faith, like we were always going to be like these bitter rivals and I'm like sitting at the table, like crying Mm. and she like, girl, take a nap (laughs) because all that you're doing right here is a lot.
0: (laughs) The dramatics. Stop the dramatics. So so is this kind of transparency that I think have people chomping at the bit to like read your work, to engage with you? Because you are really transparent about these kind of personal relationships relationship dynamics with your family. You also dive into, you know, dissecting parts of your romantic past and those relationships. And I, I know that that kind of public vulnerability is really not easy. I'm curious, what did it take for you to get to a place of confidence in your sharing? Like, how
1: do you want this kind
0: of radical transparency to impact your readers?
1: I realized that I could not have close proximity to whatever I was writing, I had a moment where I had to learn, okay, you you feel very called to share because people need to see grace gracious accountability modeled. Mm-hmm. So even if you feel called to do that, there's a way that you can do that that still leaves you whole. And so that means that you can't share if you're still going through it, right? And I had to make that promise to myself that, you know, I wouldn't share or write anything that I haven't had three sessions with my therapist with. Mm. There has to be some emotional distance so that I can look at that moment as objectively as I can to say, like, what is it that I can mine from this experience to encourage other people to do the same in their life? You can't shame me with something that I've already been freed from. And when the objective is to help get other people free, then I definitely am not at all invested in a certain kind of, of shame one of the things you've also been really
0: upfront about is your experience and and really your healing journey um, after surviving sexual assault. And that is something that you and I unfortunately have in common, as we do with a lot of people on this planet. You wrote this essay for the Me Too movement that I thought was particularly powerful in how you reflected on faith in this kind of traditionally practiced sense, both helped you and came up short. Yeah. In terms of really supporting your mental health needs, I'm thinking specifically about this quote. You said, necessary to my survival was the rejection of dangerous theology suggesting one can't pray and worry. I did both all the time. As a victim of sexual assault, my safety had been compromised and I was fearful of everyone and everything around me. It was nonsensical to believe I could just pray away that fear. How in the in the day sense of you integrated your mental health practice in those rituals with your faith? Because so many people think they can never intersect.
1: Yeah. It was always easier for me to think through them because of my mom. And she would say, you need God and every qualified professional to be your best self. And so I knew that it was okay that you could navigate mental health as well as be faithful and be Christian. And so, you know, even now, like, I recognize that stewarding my mental health is a part of honoring, let's just say, of the temple, right? And so there are moments where I have to be very clear that, like, when I'm not well, I am not the best that I can be and some of that navigation of wellness is out of my hands right so like the ways that the ways that depression work like a lot of this is chemistry and family you know family dynamics and heredity and like all, like it's not just situational right and so i've had to learn how to be much more gracious and kind to myself that like there's not something quote unquote wrong with me. God made me. And before I knew that I was going to have anxiety, God knew it. Mm. Before I knew that I would navigate depression, God knew it. And so how do I get the tools that I need that allow me to be well and also lean into a space that reminds me that even with, all of these things, I'm still good creation.
0: Yeah. You you told Glamour Magazine that you want sisters to know that it is okay to make their faith their own, that God is big enough for our questions, that it is okay to go on a journey of asking hard questions that we've been afraid to even ask ourselves. I'll tell you that that is what Red Lip Theology has been doing for me, okay. right? In being that Black church girl who's been trying to Unlearn so much of what the institution, that rigidity that you talk about um, has pushed me away from asking a lot of those questions of myself. Are there questions in particular that you're glad you're finally unafraid to ask yourself?
1: I'm glad that I finally moved to a space that gave myself permission to ask why, because why doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to get an answer. You know, I mean, I think about my mom's passing. I don't know the specifics. And now she died unexpectedly. We know that it was an asthma attack. The why that God, you know, took her. For me, God can never give me an answer that is sufficient, right? Me asking why is emblematic of me just being like, this is just not fair, And it hurts and I'm sad and I'm mad and I wish you hadn't done this. And I tell people all the time that now on this side of healing, while that is a question for me, when I get to glory and I'm looking at God and I see my mama over God's shoulder, I don't care to ask that question no more because I see my mama and I want to go get a hug. You know what I'm saying? But asking why gave me permission to explore that my feelings are valid, that what I hope for my life mattered, just as much as what is happening in my life matters, and that I get the space to reconcile the two.
0: You're holding this mirror up to yourself. You're helping us hold the mirror up to ourselves. You're also really holding up the mirror to the church, right? And I say that capital C as an institution, as a system, um, as a place of membership and doctrine and policy and money. (laughs) And holding up that mirror requiring accountability from an institution where people's identities are so deeply intertwined can be especially difficult. What do you want the church really to see about itself? meditate on and change, right? I mean, there are some really clear, immediate examples of how Christian conservatives are attacking LGBTQIA folks, they're attacking trans children, they're attacking women when it comes to our own bodily autonomy. The bigotry, the transphobia, the prejudice, it is really
1: quite tired. I really want the church to want to be on the side of God's heart. And I think that being on the side of God's heart means working to make this world more open and accepting and inclusive. I feel very much like we are deeply regressing and making those things very much less inclusive and that God's love has become very exclusive And it's just for these people if they feel or believe a certain way. And that does not reflect the God I believe that we have, nor does it reflect the diversity of creation. We don't have the capacity to suggest that we know all that we think we do. And what does that mean to release that kind of arrogance? And say that I'm just going to let my heart be open. And I, I kind of tend to decide that, you know, if I get to glory and I was wrong about a lot of stuff, then I was wrong. But because I was trying to make this world more just and equitable, I believe my wrong will be counted right. And that's the space that I want the church to be in, not not the painful exclusion, but, but a radical inclusion that makes everybody uncomfortable because we know that to be this inclusive means that we are walking completely outside of our own power, but we're leaning into something else.
0: Well, that was most definitely a word from on high. And I think it's the perfect place to close. Thank you for writing this book, for being a, a theologian of all the genres <laughs> and for making sure that that is the world we're building. I really appreciate you.
1: Thank you, friend.
0: Candace Benbow is an author, an educator, and a theologian. Her book, Red Lip Theology, is available everywhere. Woo, my God. When Candace said that we have to stop feeling obligated to a certain kind of faith rigidity that actually keeps you sick, I felt that with everything in me. Dismissing that kind of rigidity individually is necessary to. Understanding our own worth, especially for marginalized folks. And shaking off that kind of rigidity at the systems level, well, that's the key to experiencing liberation here on earth and not just in heaven. That's what it means to be a place after God's own heart. You know, people often ask me how to respond to conservative Christians who seem to stand in the way of progress. My answer is always the same. I remind them to read the instruction manual. I'm not a progressive despite being a Christian. I'm a progressive because of it. Because whether you are a person of faith or not, the guidebook is pretty clear in Micah 6.8. Do justice, love mercy. Anything else is most certainly not what Jesus would do. Oh, yeah. The cat it's it for today, but never for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Ward. Our associate producers are Alexis Moore and Mary Alexa Cavanaugh. Thanks also to Hannis Brown, Davey Sumner, and Raj Makija. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna weiss and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Ms. Pack Yeti on all social media and our incredible team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or most places you find your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being and thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free.